Good morning, Grace Chapel. Just to give you some perspective, uh, Ben mentioned how we've got a number of families and uh, people at Grace Chapel who are going through difficult times uh, because of sickness and illness and COVID and all, all sorts of things. To give you perspective, just from my perspective that I know of, there are about 20 families of Grace Chapel who are affected by or down with some sort of illness or sickness. So, I mean, just to give you a little idea of um, how important our prayers are for each other. And uh, some are recovering, some are in the final days, others are, this is their first Sunday back after a couple weeks. But this morning, well, uh, hey, before we, we head into God's Word, let's pray, would you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Again, Lord, we acknowledge you're the only one worthy of our attention, of this kind of focused request. And we pray for those who are sick. We pray for your children who love you, receive comfort from you, and look for your healing hand upon them. And Lord, that's our desire. And we pray all these things to be your will and not ours, that we would follow faithfully and that we would do whatever it is that we can do, plus prayer for them, and that you would remind us this week of the needs of others more than ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, let's finish last week's message. You probably thought, well, that wasn't over. Uh, You might have thought, well, I thought that was done. Well, no, it's not. Um, We're going to finish last week's message from the book of Judges, and we're going to take a departing look at this superhuman man, Samson, the last judge in the book of Judges. Uh, The man, so where we left him last week, the man who burned the Philistines' Philistines grain in chapter 15 is reduced to grinding the Philistines' grain in chapter 16. That's what's happened in just one chapter. And for the very first time in the book of Judges, God's chosen judge, actually the only one chosen before his birth that it was announced, has been defeated. That's where we left off. He went and he revealed to Delilah and told her that his secret strength lay in his long hair. She shaves him bald. Uh, She betrays him to God's enemies. She makes a ton of cash in the meantime, and the Philistine warlords cut out Samson's eyes and chain him to a grain-grinding wheel to be made fun of and mocked for the rest of his days. So, So now the God of deliverance, who we've seen time and time again deliver his people in the book of Judges, faithful Yahweh who always comes through on his promises, looks like he's defeated, he's being ridiculed, and Israel is still under oppression. First time this has happened with a judge. And in chapter 16, verse 22, we're going to be in chapter 16 today, we read, but the hair, this is while he's chained up grinding grain, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Does that strike you as odd? You may be thinking, well, of course it did, because this is what hair does, Pete. Uh, so, So, writer of Judges, why record this statement? 
I believe the point that we're supposed to get, that we're supposed to receive from this, is that the Philistines let his hair grow back. They let it. They could not have been such fools, right, to miss the fact that his hair was growing long again. Like, they didn't like, oh, that's strange. First item on a Philistine's to-do list for every day would be shave Samson's head, right? That's your, I mean, did you guys, did you shave his head today? Okay, if you don't do it, I'm going to go do it right now. Okay, every day we're going to shave this guy's head, right? I mean, this, I mean, I'm just reading the text and I'm thinking, but they didn't. In their minds, it, it had already been established that the long hair on Samson was not a good idea, right? Then it got shaved off because he was betrayed by his wife Delilah, and he's not strong anymore. One plus one equals two. And they must have concluded then, what I'm, what I'm seeing here, that once his hair is cut, Samson is no longer a Nazarite. Remember, it's the Nazarite vow that God placed on him and had his parents commit to before he was even born that was the source of his strength at this point as we're reading it. His vow, well, the vow of his parents on his behalf, that vow would be broken once his hair was cut. It would be done. And that's true. That's true. Do you remember where we looked at the Nazarite vow last week in um, Numbers chapter 6? in those first 21 verses. And here we see in Numbers chapter 6 that this vow in, in the three parts of that vow put the Nazarite in a state of, of, of consecration, of dedication to God. And it was for a definite period of time. And it says in Numbers chapter 6 verse 18 that once they shaved their head, the period of consecration is over. And since Samson's strength really flowed out of his dedicated, dedication, his consecration to the Lord, and that dedication was visibly evident to everybody through the vows, it seemed natural for these Philistine overlords to conclude that his vow and his power from God was over. But the confidence of these captors in letting his hair grow back also shows that they have a very shallow view, an almost magical kind of view of Israel's God, Yahweh. Samson's strength had not come from the vows he made. Our strength does not come from the vows we make to God. It comes from the God he made the vows to. God does as he wills every time, and he's not dependent on you, and he's not dependent on me, and he wasn't even dependent on Samson to get stuff done. The Philistines knew nothing of the God who does the unexpected. Case in point, the very first judge we looked, one of the first judges we looked at, Ehud. The Philistines knew nothing of a God whose strength is made perfect in weakness, Gideon, the judge. And the God who never breaks his word, never 
breaks his word, even though his followers often break his word. That God in chapter 13 from last week, verse 7, had said that Samson would be a Nazarite, get this, to the day of his death. God put the time period on Samson as a Nazarite, not the cutting of his hair. I'm thinking, had the Philistines realized this, they should have killed Samson as soon as they captured him, right? That's how you finish off the Nazarite vow and all this strength. But they didn't get it. God's abandonment of his servant was only temporary. God had determined how this was going to play out. So, so God's promise would hold true, it always does, even if Samson might despise it, as it apparently looked like he did throughout his life. You see, there is grace abounding even to the chief of sinners, always. Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, knew this fact experientially, and he shared it with a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, where he told Timothy, if we are faithless, he, God, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He will keep his promises. So in this dramatic ending of the last judge of Israel, we see a remarkable case of one of the big themes we've been looking at, and maybe it's been bugging you, you know, because it always bugs me too, of the entire book of Judges. There's this tension in the book of Judges. There's this tension of, there's this conditionality that looks like there needs to be for God to do things, and yet there's this unconditionality because God does it anyway. It's You'll hear preachers today, and they might say something like, I hope I never do, catch me, all right, if you can. All right? Catch me if I, if I ever do this, because I'm slipping up and I'm not realizing it. I want you to do and, and they might say, God cannot, or God will not do this if. And it might play out to be true, right? But it might not that there are conditions to God's physical blessings, because that's how we in North America look at blessings. I'm just being honest. It's not a place for you and I to tread. But there are. And then again, (laughs) there aren't. And our experience would seem to contradict that if you do something, then this will happen. Of course, as I said, to be blessed in America usually involves material things. That's how we define and evaluate God's blessing. But don't, any one of us cannot tell a faithful believer who's living in an oppressive society in another part of the world that our faithfulness as shallow as it may be at times, has somehow warranted all these things we enjoy in this country. And they just need to be more faithful. Really? Have you read their testimonies? Have you heard their stories? Their faith is at a place 
I, I, I don't know if I'll ever reach. Not under the concurrent, current conditions we live in. A saint is oppressed in a country and suffers. A sinner in freedom makes out like a bandit. That's starting to sound like one of the Psalms. Oh God, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? I thought if we did this and were faithful, then this would happen. And we know God requires of us certain things, right? Don't we know that? I mean, we read Scripture, we share it together through the week, and we dig into it on Sunday mornings. We know God requires certain things of His children. There's conditions, there's expectations that come along with this great salvation that we have. But He is faithful even when we're not. But that's not an excuse to not be faithful. Oh, God's going to do it anyway, so what does it matter? Because there are dire consequences. Samson had his eyes gouged out. He's being mocked for we don't know how long. It could have been years grinding grain and chained to that. That's his life. Pain, suffering, loss. But God's promises to His children will always eventually play out just as He said. So the the Philistines, let's get back to the story. The Philistines knew only conditional gods, gods who were subject to magic, specific, precise incantations out of a book, blood sacrifices, Hopefully, you're firstborn because that's got more mm to it to get the God to move. Promises to manipulate what might happen, rain to fall from the sky, crops to grow, a wife to have lots of kids. However, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is a God of grace. Old Testament, New Testament, God of grace. And He remains faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to Him. I don't get it. I can't explain it. I just know that's a fact. And I'm pretty jacked up about it. How about you? He's not bound. God is not limited by the terms of the Nazarite vow. Samson's hair growing back is not meant to make us as readers of this story go, oh, oh, his hair is coming back. Sweet. I I know what's going to happen now. He's going to put it in a ponytail, and he's going to be all strong again because his strength relies on his hair. Everybody said two-letter word begins with an N. No. We're meant to think, oh, the Philistines are stupid. They falsely presume that his strength is gone because his vow was broken. They don't understand that God's work, God's power, is not constrained or contingent upon his servant's obedience. They are about to get really messed up. And God tells us plainly through the Apostle Paul's letters that our battle, this day-to-day 
physical world activity that you and I participate in every moment of every day is not even the real battle. But we make it that. It's it's not saying it's not a big deal. I'm just saying we make it the big deal, and it's not. Scripture makes it plain that there's a spiritual realm right now where stuff is going on that really matters. Paul says it in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Not yours, not mine. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The true contest where Samson is being taken right now is the temple of the Philistines, Dagon's temple. That's their God. And the true contest in that temple is not between Samson and the Philistines, but it's between Yahweh the Lord with a capital L and Dagon the false Lord, small l. Who is stronger? This is what it's all about. Who should Israel serve and follow? All along, God has been working, (laughs) even through Samson's weaknesses as we saw last week. Why? Well, as Judges 14.4 says, to confront the Philistines. This This is why God raised up the judge, Samson, to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. And we've already seen with every one of the judges how the oppression of Israel by a particular nation was directly tied to the worship of Israel towards that nation's gods direct high. The oppression is about spiritual idolatry as much as it is about the physical hardship that they endured and the loss of freedom that happened to them. God rescues His people, most of all, from spiritual idolatry. Them and you and I. Rather than merely local enemies, bad neighbors, oppressive government, any outside influence. And so it seems as though Dagon has won. 16.23 of Judges says that the rulers of the Philistines assembled to proclaim the apparent truth that our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Any faithful reader of Scripture looks at that statement and says, you guys, you shouldn't have said that. This is a bad idea. It's going to fall down on you, and it's going to. So the setting of God's choosing, this this is amazing, right, how He orchestrates everything. The setting of God's choosing takes place in the temple of the Philistines' god, Dagon. And they're celebrating, and they're praising Dagon for the victory over Samson, and they add to the humiliation of Yahweh by mocking Yahweh's failed Savior. Samson is brought out, the text says, to entertain them. 
But Samson, though, isn't finished yet. Thank the Lord. He has to be put between the two pillars of the temple upon which the whole thing rests. And we're in our mind, we're going, oh, this is, I, can, I, I know it's going to happen. In Hebrews 11, uh, we looked at it briefly last week in verses uh, 32 through 34. It says that Samson was a man of faith. And as you've read his story so far, you're probably not going there, right? You're going, wow, if he's a man of faith after that, I'm doing good. You're not supposed to think that. And this is possibly, this incident in the temple, is possibly the only place in his story where it could be said that Samson exercised true faith. What's very interesting is the reference in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, where it says that all these heroes that he's just listed, and Samson being one of them, were made strong out of weakness. I think this might be the whole deal for you and I to get from Samson. This is tremendous insight that we're being given by the writer of Hebrews. God is giving us something very useful as we evaluate what's going on in our life right now, our present life. Samson had been humbled into the dust. I mean, he is a groveling, blind, physically blind man who's mocked every moment of the day. I can't imagine what abuse these wicked men would have done to him every day. And he's had his weakness exposed for all to see in a very, very grotesque way. And his last request of God that we have recorded here is a complete departure from what we've seen in him up until this point with all those feats of strength that God allowed him to perform, which appear to have been done out of temper, a bad temper, pride, and arrogance. Like, I deserve this. Do this. And in Judges 16.28, this broken Savior, Samson, first asks, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Remember me is a humble request for mercy. God, show me some merciful attention. He knows now that he is quite forgettable. He's been put in that place. Samson, you're really not all that. He knows now that God has every right to ignore this request. But second, Samson asks, and please strengthen me only this once, one more time. And here at last is his acknowledgement of his complete and total dependence on God's grace. You see, Samson's, Samson's real temptation, as you read through the story, has been to believe that we as people, and him in particular, were blessed by God because of something great and deserving in us. I, maybe Samson didn't, we're not given the story, but maybe Samson didn't start out that way. Maybe this was a gradual growth of pride and arrogance as he began to see, look what I can do. This is awesome. 
but we're all somehow turned from these amazing blessings that God has given to each one of us who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior, grace that's been freely given, gifts and talents totally undeserved, and we turn them around to somehow be connected to what we do or who we are or who our parents were or what school we went to, all all kinds of stuff. Samson had been spiritually blind. He's physically blind now. But he had been spiritually blind to see that what he had been given, he had been given by the grace of God, and it wasn't his right to use them as he wished for his own pleasure, which is what he'd been doing. And that arrogance, not his wife Delilah, was his big sin. It's his own pride and arrogance. It can be so hard sometimes to remember that we do what we do only because of God's grace. That God's grace is given that we might do what is pleasing to Him and at the time might not be pleasing to us. And it is service, sacrificial service to His children. Samson believes God will answer with power. And so in Judges 16.30, it says, And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those that he had killed during his entire life. Samson's death did not end the power of the enemy. It did not utterly defeat Israel's oppression. We're going to have to read on later through King Saul and King David. They're still dealing with these guys. And they finally get eradicated, but it takes a long time. Samson's death, though, did literally crush the enemy, right? Like under rock. The Philistines and their idol made out of rock, Dagon. And and it's kind of a shadow of what's to come. And it's definitely a light that you and I get to walk in. Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, our ultimate enemy, Satan, is what? Crushed. As Samson brought the temple crashing down on Dagon and his followers, the apparent physical triumph that they were celebrating at the time was reversed, and Samson helped foster a permanent alienation that existed through Saul's time and through David's time, and they rebelled against these Philistine overlords, and the two cultures clashed. That's what God wanted. He wanted a clash of the two cultures so that Israel would see they are distinct They serve a holy God, so they're supposed to be holy. No longer under this culture, this pagan culture and power. Their God is the only God. There can only be one. And on the cross, God brought the power of Satan to nothing. Sometimes Christians don't live like that. I know I have my days where I'm 
you know, you get oppressed, you get downtrodden, and then because you, you forget, you don't remember. God disarmed him on the cross. Colossians 2.15, he, God, disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame. Remember those principalities and powers we fight against every day? They were put to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God, through Jesus, God the Son, God the Father took away the penalty of our idolatry, death, so that Satan could no longer successfully accuse, prosecute, present evidence to God about his children. And by the way, Satan has plenty of evidence to prosecute us with. It's gone because of Jesus' blood. The cross took away the power of sin. In our lives, we do not have to do that anymore. The cross enabled the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to indwell us, to captivate us, to break the, to break the lure of the idols, those idols that constantly prowl for our hearts. It's interesting that both Samson and Jesus died alone. It's very interesting. Othniel and Ehud, the first two judges, rallied all of Israel. Deborah and, and, and Barak had two whole tribes. Gideon had only 300. But Samson was all by himself. By his time, sin, sin had so devastated the people of God that no one, including for most of his life, Samson, no one was willing to sacrifice themselves to the liberation battle. No one. That's how bad it got. And in the same way, only the Lord Jesus not only would, but was the only sacrifice who could deliver people by the power of God. And this should lead you and I to constantly evaluate ourselves. And the only way to evaluate ourselves is through the Word of God. That's why we go to it every Sunday morning. That's why we encourage each other to be in it constantly every day. And through personal accountability to other believers who are also in that same process of soaking in and meditating on and then applying the Word of God to what's going on in our life today. Do you find that you can easily rationalize some of your sins? Is, is it just me? Isn't this sort of a, a human trait? We actually get pretty clever and good at it, right? We rationalize sins such as materialism. Well, a commercial said, <laughs> what did it say? You, you deserve this. And you know what? I do. Or, or, or we rationalize worry. Well, aren't you worried about it? I mean, there's something to worry about. Uh, bitterness. Pride. These things don't look bad in our eyes. They might even sometimes look righteous. As the 17th century 
Puritan writer Thomas Brooks put it, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Let that soak in. Sin. Boy, it's a bad word, isn't it? And some may ask, will we ever be free of it? Well, many of us who are in Jesus Christ today because of our faith in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we have seen our sins judged already. Amen? I mean, it would be better if we lived like that, but we've seen our sins judged already. And that judgment occurred where? On the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, God the Father, through the death of God the Son, it's not only the place where we're declared righteous, where we're justified in His sight because of the blood of Christ. It's also the proof that God does judge and God does punish sin through Jesus. I know it's, it's grace. I, it's, I, can't, I can't explain it. He did that. God never let sin go unpunished. He punished sin through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Romans 5, 25 and 26, and you, can, you should you really read this whole chapter, but this, what God did through Jesus on the cross, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember, there was the, uh, the sacrificial system, but it was temporary. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave tells us that there is still a coming judgment. I mean, there was the judgment at the cross that I believe in, I trust in, I am saved by. But the resurrection of Jesus from the grave tells us there's still a coming judgment for all of those who sin will not be punished by Jesus' death on the cross because they reject Jesus' death on the cross as the only payment for their sins if they even acknowledge they have sin. The resurrection is further proof that God will judge and punish sin. That day's coming. Acts 17, 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I've done everything that needs to be done, repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, so now we know who that man was, from the dead. God saved the world from judgment for all who believe, and he will one day judge the world for all who do not believe. You know, the coal miners in northwestern Pennsylvania, I've read this because this was outlawed, I think, in the 70s, but what they used to do for, for like hundreds of years is they would take caged canaries. I know, I'm sorry for those of you who love canaries. They would take these caged canaries deep into the mines. And when the canary started gasping for breath or died, 
they knew it was a sign that they had little time left to get out of that mine. Oxygen. That non-negotiable for all we humans was running low and deadly gases were increasing and death was imminent. We don't think about it often, do we? Only when we're reminded that there is no survival without oxygen. Everybody take a breath. You've been doing that for almost a half hour now without even thinking, yeah, I really need to do this. How strange that you and I would ever attempt to spiritually survive on something different than spiritual oxygen. Something that God has provided that we were meant to breathe in and out daily. All those spiritual things that we have through Jesus Christ. What is the matter with us? Sin tempts us to try to survive on other things. Substitutes. Like the things in creation that are all around us. Beautiful things. All the physical pleasures in life. Wonderful things. It's exactly what we encountered so far in the book of Judges, right? We read like the book of Judges. The created physical world around us and its very tangible, immediate glories were designed by our Creator in heaven to draw us closer to our glorious Creator in heaven. The things of this world were never meant to sustain us independently of Him, Trying to find life outside of our Creator brings suffocation and death. And like a canary in that cage, we need to be reminded, we need to be exposed when we are breathing in death. Because that's what everything else in this world is. It's death. It breeds death. We need to be reminded what to breathe, what to take in, And it's always the same answer, the Word of God. Because it points out all the traps. God's Word points out all the schemes of the evil one. You know, in some ways, the end of Samson is the end of the judge's story. Um, He's the last judge. And his death appears to be the last chronological event in this book. We leave with a dead judge and a very incomplete rescue. But there are four more chapters in the book of Judges. We're going to come back next week and polish them off. Would you rise with me as we praise our Father in heaven for the book of Judges, but more so for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ and all these spiritual blessings. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we, we pour our cries, our requests, our petitions to you. But now, Lord, we give you praise and we give you honor and we see you as glorious. And Lord, as we sing, we ask for you to cleanse us, to show of us if there is any wicked way, any idolatrous thought or action going on to repent, to come clean, 
and to walk on with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.